You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Hey, the teaching text today is Acts 5, 1-11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money, he brought, but he brought the rest and put it at the disciples' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to, just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. When some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out, and buried him. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, it's not every day you hear about someone dying in church. So let's call a spade a spade and say this is a weird story we're going to get into today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Diaz, I'm one of the pastors here. And today we are starting a new series. Um, this series is entitled Messy Church. It's, unlike the rooted community behind me, this new series... <laughs> is entitled Messy Church, which goes to show you churches are messy. There you go. It was all an illustration, I promise you. But for the past three weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be a rooted community. What does it look like to live a life so ingratiated in the spirit of God, manifesting itself within a community of people to bring about the flourishing of that community and then those things that surround that community. And we've painted um, this portrait that is quite beautiful of this community rooted in the Holy Spirit, doing life together, bound up together in this beautiful matrix of individuals becoming this one unified body. And it is this beautiful picture. And it would be remiss of us, after going through a series talking about how beautiful this community can look like, to not talk about beautiful things can also be messy. That a community that is still full of the spirit of God, that a community that is ingratiated into the life-giving power of God can still somehow be messy. And so to avoid the danger of idealism in which we idealize, we, we, we make the ideal out of something and we think that thing's reality, this series is gonna ground us in the reality that while the church can be beautiful, it also can be messy. I might be preaching to the choir. But to kind of anchor us, there's this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes this book called Life Together. Um, and he says this, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What is Bonhoeffer's point? That Christ has not called us to love abstractions, he's called us to love flesh and blood embodied things. 
It's why the great commission, the, the great golden rule is, is not to love humanity in general, to love people in general, but to love your neighbor, the person in front of you. And it's why we can't love the idea of Christian community. We have to love the Christian community, the one God has placed us in. Now, this doesn't mean there's, there's no space to mention the church's brokenness or wrestle with the reality that churches often don't operate as they should, that often churches don't look like the kingdom of God. But for this series, we're going to look at the church in all its messiness and through its messiness hope that we learn to love it. And so this brings us to our teaching text today in Acts chapter 5. Up until this point, everything has been going pretty awesome for this early nascent Christian community in Jerusalem. People are being saved. People are selling their property and giving it to the apostles to to fund the work that the church is doing. And, And really the only trouble seems to be coming from outside. We see this in Acts 4 where Peter and John are arrested and they're, they're given over to the Sanhedrin in question. And so up until this point, this, this Christian community, this Pentecost community is going great. Everything's going good. The problems seem to be outside until we get Acts 5 and enter Ananias and Sapphira. This is the first impetus that a Christian community filled with the Holy Spirit Encountering the radical gospel of Jesus Christ can still be messy. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they're, a, they're an interesting duo. Um, they, we don't know how they enter into the Christian community. Maybe they were some of the people that got saved at Pentecost. Maybe they were some of those earlier believers in Jesus. All we know is that they're connected to the Christian community and they know enough to know what's going on. Namely, that in the community up until this point, like in Acts chapter 4, so the chapter above it, uh, we get like people like Barnabas who are taking their personal property, selling it, and giving it to those in need. Giving it to the apostles to give to those in need. So that no one had any lack. That the, the Christian community was this community radically giving to one another so that no one had need. And so we know enough about Ananias and Sapphira that they know this is going on. And we know they're a part of the community because they come to the apostles, except in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we get a glimpse of what's going on. That they decide to sell their property. They decide to give it to the apostles, but there's a catch. They secretly plot to keep half of the proceeds of the property for themselves. But to go to the apostles as if they were giving the whole thing. So this is, this is where we get into the trouble. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they hatch their scheme. They, they show up to the apostles. Ananias shows up first and tells Peter, hey, listen, like all the others, I too am really spiritual and holy. So I've sold all my property and here is the proceeds to the church. And Peter says, how, how has Satan entered you that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? Why would you pretend that this was the whole proceeds when it's not? Drops dead. Okay? His wife shows up later in the passage. And Peter point blank asks her, hey, listen, Sapphira, I, I got a question for you. Your husband came in earlier, gave us some money. Is this all the money from the property you sold? No. Well, 
Yes, it is. And in her lying, she too drops dead. What's the big deal? Okay, they, they told a little lie about the money was where the money was going. What, what's going on here that these two people in Scripture deserve instant death for their decision to lie about the proceeds of the sale of their personal property? Now, I want to take a moment to give us a little caveat. Um, this is a difficult passage. It is not often we read about God smiting people dead on the spot, in church, around people, getting buried instantly outside. We can imagine how weird it would be if I were to collapse at this moment and you guys took me outside and buried me in a nearby cemetery. It would be weird, it would be awkward, we'd have a lot of questions. I want to admit that this passage is difficult. And especially for many of us, maybe we're wrestling with our conceptions of God's divine judgment. What is his role in his connection to judgment and his grace, his love and his mercy and his justice? I want to acknowledge all those questions are legitimate and should be explored. They're just beyond the purview of what we're going to do here today. Because I think actually to get focused on the death would be actually to miss out what God is trying to say here. That it's actually through these complex, mysterious, ancient texts that God wants to speak, of, speak to us. And so in faith, let us approach this text with our skepticism, maybe with our bit of discomfort, but lean in anyways. Because often it's when the Bible makes us uncomfortable that there's something profound to be said. And so, what's the big deal? Why do Ananias and Sapphira deserve the death they got? Well, I want to make the case that Ananias and Sapphira had a radical heart issue. That it's not actually about the money. The implication of Peter's language in the text, the way he addresses Ananias, he says, the property was yours. Here's what the implications most scholars kind of see behind that, is that it's not the amount that mattered. If Ananias and Sapphira would have showed up and said, hey, listen, we sold our property. We're giving you half. Here's our tithe and offering. They would have been good. If Ananias and Sapphira would have sold their property and kept all the money, they would have been good. The issue is not the amount of the money, but this idea they had that they could get the kingdom of God on the cheap. That they could get the gospel for half off. That they could get the full benefits of God and the Christian community at a price they could afford. Ananias and Sapphira have this radical delusion that the gospel is something you get by back room swindling and not public devotion. That the kingdom of God is something that can be bartered for. That, that, that I can kind of wheel and deal and, and get the full benefits of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news about his redemptive work and the full benefits of the Christian community and the love and brotherhood and sisterhood that's shared within the bonds of this fellowship without giving what God has asked them to give. The issue isn't the amount, it's in the spirit in which the amount was given. It was this belief that they could show up, say they were giving their all, but actually giving half. It was the idea that they could show up to the apostles and say, yeah, we're sold out for Jesus. But in reality, secretly, keeping something to themselves. 
The great danger for the church today is not that we take God too seriously, but that we don't take him seriously enough. We want a gospel we can afford, a vision of the kingdom that costs us only that with which we are willing to part. Or in Bonhoeffer's words, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, and the consolations of religion thrown away at cut prices. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without the cross, without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This is the problem, is that we have been sold on the idea that grace is cheap, that the kingdom of God can be got on discount, that that we can have the full benefits of the grace and mercy and the life-giving power and presence of the Spirit, but secretly keep part of our lives to ourselves. Like Jesus can have my finances, but he can't have my relationships. Jesus can have my my, my attendance on Sunday, but he can't have um, my showing up on Monday to to help with North Brooklyn Angels. Like, Like Jesus can have, he can have my prayer time, he can have my devotional time, but he can't have my confession of my sin one to another. That... Let's think a bit broader. This is the church in the West today. Jesus can have our preaching, but he can't have our political affiliation. Jesus can can have my my, my life dedicated to the work of the ministry. He just can't have the fame that I want to come with it. Jesus can have all our great programs. He can have all the good things we do. He just can't have the way we treat the people who volunteer in them. That the, the, the cheap grace is always grace minus the essential ingredient, which is sacrifice. That cheap grace is a vision of the kingdom of God that says you can have the kingdom at a price you can afford. It actually won't cost you anything as long as you put on the front, as long as you pretend, as long as you give a little something. And the reason we have so many messy churches in the world, churches that maybe some of us may have even been a part of, churches that we may have been wounded by, the reason we have churches selling out to political power or burning out the people they're supposed to serve or serving as personal platforms for charismatic personalities who have a form of religion but lack the power thereof is because part of the great sin of church here in the West is that you could have Jesus your way. That you can have Jesus as you desire him, not as he is. That you can have the kind of dress up your own Jesus. He can be your vindicator. He can be your justifier. He just can't condemn your sin. That that, that the Jesus of our own making can, can be a great healer and a great teacher. He just can't be the only way. This is cheap grace. This is what sent Ananias and Sapphira to their death. Because any vision of the kingdom, any vision of grace, any vision of Christ that says you can have all of God but not give all of yourself is the way to death. I preach passionately because 
This is a message that cuts both ways. This is a message not preached to you, but received with you. Because all of us, if we are very honest, either now or at some point in our journey, have desired this vision of cheap grace. As a matter of fact, have even shown up today, maybe, for being utterly honest, saying, I want all of Jesus, he just can't have all of me. And so I preach passionately because I've been in this trap before. I know what this looks like all too well. I've shown up many a times on a Sunday, many a times in preaching, many a times in pastoring, saying, God, you can have my ministry, you just can't have blank. Now, for a moment, I want to bring a pastoral perspective. If we're not careful, a message like this is easily manipulated. I'll be tell you, share a bit about from my, from my story just so you can see where I'm coming from. I've sat and served in congregations where I was never loyal enough, never honoring enough, I was never doing enough, I was never giving enough, serving enough. And so the message like this, the way I would hear it in those contexts would be, well, Ryan, uh, sacrifice for Jesus looks like just doing more for the church. And of course, the follow-up was a program they, had, they were started that they need our, our involvement in. And so there's something about a message like this that is challenging but also triggering. That there is the reality that many of us have sat in pews and every Sunday it's like, man, I'm never doing enough for this place. I'm never showing up enough. I'm never volunteering enough. I told them my, 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 my grandparents died, but then they asked me when I was going to show up to serve. I, and messages like this are used as tools of shame to get us to do more rather than to be and experience the healing presence of God in the seasons we needed it. However, the danger is, because of those experiences, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. To have a Christ that never challenges us because challenge was used as a means of shame and guilt. But here's the difference that I propose will, will make this message not that is that I have no pre-prescriptive platform for you. I have no thing to invite you into. I have no pre-designed, cookie-cutter vision of discipleship that conveniently fits the church's mission statement. I have no program to say sign up for at the end of this. I have no volunteer drive we need at the end of this. Because what we're talking about here is not something you do specifically for this body as in something that happens within these four walls like a program or volunteering or giving. What we're talking about is the state of your heart. And so, the only person who knows what you're withholding from Jesus is you and Jesus. So I have nothing to invite you to. I, I have no grand schemes for after this service, the response is gonna be here's the list to sign up for. What I do have is a very real Jesus who stands before us and is saying, I want all of you. Why are you giving me some of you? I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. I don't know what it is for you. And so lest we dismiss this message as a manipulative grab towards you, getting you to do more things for this church, hear me, this is not that. This is Jesus confronting you and saying, what more do you have to give me that you have been keeping from me? What secret cycle of sin, what, what gift or talent, what, what relationship, what, 
What vocation, what thing, what attitude, what mindset have you kept from me and yet have expected all of me? I want to invite us to think about that for a moment. Have we been showing up saying, God, I've given you my all, and yet, in actuality, we've been giving him a part of us? If it's a reality for you, I don't think you need to think that hard. And so the invitation today is that we actually take this message seriously. That we stop living under, under the presumption that the kingdom can be had on the cheap. That the kingdom is something you bargain for rather than you give your whole life to. That the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't all-consuming. That grace is indeed costly. But lest you feel utterly terrible about yourself, and you're like, man, well, obviously this thing's I'm keeping from Jesus, come on, I'm a human being, I want to invite you to the reality that you are not alone in this. That there is a reason, specifically in church communities, in which the gospel of cheap grace is so prevalent and powerful. It is because our existence is a cosmic one that there is indeed an enemy, a Satan, an accuser, principalities and powers that actively work against a body like this. You know, we often preach about Jesus and the gospel and the goodness of God, but you know, as the old saying goes, the, the greatest achievement Satan ever achieved was to convince all of us that he doesn't exist. There, that there isn't dark spiritual powers at work against us. That there is a kingdom of darkness that would hate to see this community flourish as a beacon of light in this community. That, that, that there is a kingdom of darkness actively sowing seeds of division so that we would not be the united body Christ has called us to. You know, the messiness of the church that we see at, at work in, in, in our experience, uh, the messiness of the church we've experienced in our own personal lives, all that brokenness, it is both human responsibility, but the reality that we have an accuser and a deceiver who actively works against us. That Ananias and Sapphira, the, their sin is their sin, but we have to look at the text that, 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 that Peter um, is not being facetious. He's not using hyperbole. He, he tells Ananias that Satan has filled him. He uses the same language in Acts, the, the same verb, plerao, that, 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 ver, that they think to fill, like you'd fill a vessel, like you'd fill a cup. It's the same language used by Luke and Acts to talk about being filled with the Spirit. And so rather than being filled with the Spirit, Peter's making the point to Ananias that somehow you've been filled with Satan. That his schemes, his, his, the, the scheme that's as old as time, Satan is not creative, but he is effective. That the scenes at the beginning of the garden was that you can have a version of God that fits you. If you just but eat this fruit, you will be like God. You know what's the crazy part of the Genesis narrative? Is that the goal of the humans being the image of God was always to be like God. 
was always to learn from God's goodness and wisdom and grow into their fullness as image bearers so that they, this is what the Greek Orthodox call theosis. This is their, that we were always supposed to, be, to become in likeness to God, grow in our capacity to likeness to God. That is the original deposit of what it means to be the image of God and yet Satan says, well, I can get you Godhood if you just eat the fruit. When Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan appears to tempt him, he says, oh, Jesus, I'll give you the whole, oh, you want the kingdom of God? You want a kingdom? I could give you a kingdom. Matter of fact, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. That the, 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 that the lie and temptation of the enemy is always, has always been that we can get a version of God that suits us and fits us and answers our immediate desires at the cost of compromise at the cost of withholding, at the cost of saying, God, I'm gonna pretend to give you my all in reality, I've traded you for 30 pieces of silver. And so this temptation is real in Christian community because Satan is real and the kingdom of darkness is real because principalities and powers are real. And so we have to wrestle with the reality is, have we fallen for that temptation? Have we fallen for a vision of cheap grace that says the kingdom of God is something I can trade in maybe part of me, but not all of me? Because that has been the original temptation since the beginning. And so now you're thinking, okay, well, there's a tempter. I've obviously given in because I know that thing I'm not giving God. I, can, I, I, don't, I don't even have to think too difficult about it. I know exactly what you're talking about, Ryan. So where's the hope? How do we avoid becoming a messy church occupied by ideas of cheap grace? Because that's where the messiness stems from. That's where the brokenness stems from. That's where the infighting and the division and, and, the, and the, 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 the hatred for one another that can grow within a body of believers comes from is that we could have God, all of him, and give him only a piece of us. That he can keep those, we can keep those things that we so desire without actually giving up that which Christ is calling us to give up. And so if, if this is the reality, if this is what we're actually facing in, in the church here, in this specific community, in the church community at large, what is then the, re, the remedy? Well, if the, if the temptation that grace is cheap, if that's the temptation, then the, rem, the, the remedy is to remember that grace is costly. Unlike Ananias, when Jesus was faced with temptation in the wilderness, when he was offered the kingdom on the cheap, when he was offered all the kingdoms of the world for a simple kneeling, Jesus reminded Satan that grace was costly. That the only way to true life in a community like this, the only way to true life in our individual lives is to acknowledge that grace costs. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, grace is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Grace is costly, so costly it cost God his son. 
And the great hope we have is that while we've been unfaithful, while, while we've may have been withholding from God, God has never withheld from us. That while you might have that secret thing you're keeping from God that you think is secret, but God knows, while, while you've been withholding that which God has asked of you to give, and now your life is full of messiness and death as a result. Because here's the thing, the thing is, the, the, the great cost of cheap grace is death. Ananias and Sapphira happen to get theirs right there in that moment. But the reality that sin, the wages of sin is death. That sin always corrupts to the point of utter death. That is the cost. But the great hope is Jesus, the God-man, fully incarnate. That when, when everyone in the world is convinced that grace is cheap, Jesus always remembers that grace is costly. And so while we have always withheld from God, God has never withheld from us. So much so that he gave us his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so guess what? The great irony, though, is in order to gain that life, you've got to lose it first. And in one of the parables, Jesus talks about the kingdom being like a seed. And unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce life. And so a seed has to cease to be a seed in order to become the great crop it needs to be. That there needs to be some death. That to actually follow Jesus, to actually be a part of a Christian community like this one, is to commit ourselves to the daily dying to self. It's why Jesus is, is very honest about what this whole thing costs. Jesus in the Gospels, he tells people to count the cost of following him. Because he's very upfront. This thing might cost you everything, but it'll also gain you everything. Band, come up. Prayer team, let's get ready. Because I kind of have nothing left to say. I mean, guys, I could keep going, you never know, but... <clears throat> Listen, hear me. If we want to be the people, the church, the community that Christ has called us to be, if we want to be the Oaks Church Brooklyn that Jesus has called us to be, then we must give Christ what is his. If we want to be the people of God in this neighborhood for such a time as this, if we want to be a life-giving community, then we must give Christ what is his. We must refuse any form of community or Christ or gospel or kingdom that does not cost us something. We will say, Lord, this is what I have to give. I lay it at your feet. You know what's beautiful about this? Because it's between you and God, we all give different things. There's no pre-prescriptive form of what we should give. It, it's what God is asking you to give. You know the thing. And it's going to look different from your neighbor. And it's going to look different from me. And it's going to look different from the host standing in the back. It's going to look different. But as long as we're faithful to what God has asked us to give, notice this, nothing more, nothing less. The great sin of compromise is giving God less. You know what the great sin of legalism is? Trying to give more than God asked. And so if we can just identify what God wants us to lay down today, we might become not a perfect community, but a messy community full of people daily dying to themselves, being filled with the Spirit, who in the midst of their mess realize, 
I must continually give of myself. I must continually die to myself. Give Christ my all so that that life I desire might be given back to me. And that's when we'll see life flourish in this community. This community might just have to die in order to live. And so today, there's two kinds of responses I want to call us to. The first response will be repentance. If you know what that thing is you've held back from God, if like Ananias and Sapphira, you've plotted in secret to withhold something from your Savior, and you showed up today and you act like you're giving your all, but you know, like you know, I know that thing. Because this, we can't act like this thing is just one time. We're continually faced with this temptation. So we have to continually self-reflect and ask God, what am I withholding from you so that I could have all of you but not give all of me? So for some of us, there's repentance. God, I repent, I've been withholding X from you. For some of us, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're convicted. You're, you're yeah, like... I know exactly what that is, God. And, and maybe the next stage for you is like, it's not just, some of us, we just need to name it. Some of us, we've already named it over and over again in our heads. It's why we can't sleep at night. It's why we can't pray. It's why the word feels lifeless. It's because we're trying to do all these godly sort of things without actually giving fully ourselves to God. And so maybe you need the courage and the bravery to lay down your life, lay down that thing, the same courage and bravery that carried Jesus to the cross. Notice you don't have to come up with that on your own. It is a gift of the spirit. The willingness to die to self is a very act of grace itself. And you just need to say, God, I've repented more times than I can count, but now I just need the courage to lay it down. If that's you, we want to pray for you as well. So allow me to pray for us. Our team will lead us into some worship, and our team is here to pray for you. Um, I'll be sitting over here on one of these couches to pray for you, and we can just chat and seek God together. But why don't you stand your feet, and let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, this story in your scripture is so odd, but it holds within it this great truth that you cannot be had via compromise, that you will not be bought at a swindler's price, that in order to have all of you, all of ourselves must be given, that to live we must die and to and to live, we must give that which we want to withhold for ourselves. I don't know what that is for the people in this room, Lord. I might know what it is for myself, God, but only you know that secret thing they've kept from you, God, that you've been asking for so they may have life and so that they could actually be a life-giving member of this community, God. And so for those of us who need to repent, give us the... Just show us your loving arms that we can know, come to you and repent knowing that we're received by grace. And for those of us, we know exactly what we need to lay down, but we haven't mustered the strength to do it. Give us the strength today. Because God, while we've withheld a lot from you, I can, a, a laundry list, a, a mile long of all the things I've withheld from you in my life, God. You've never withheld yourself from us, God. You've always given all. So we give all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.